It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. We will skip down to verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thanks, Sharon. Hey, everyone. I am a little under the weather, so we're going to have counseling preaching today, if that's okay with you. We're doing, if you're newer, we are doing this series called Entrusted, which is on the biblical concept of stewardship. Stewardship is kind of an old English word that just means somebody who's been entrusted with something. So the English still call it a trust. So a, a steward is somebody who has been given a trust, and they need to be faithful with it. That's all it means. You've been given a trust, and you need to be faithful with it. A trust is, by definition, something you don't own, but that's entirely under your authority right? You've been entrusted with it. So in Christian terms, everything that you have and your life itself isn't ultimately yours. It's yours in distinction to your neighbors, for example. Like your car is yours and it's not your neighbor's car, right? But in the ultimate sense, to a Christian who knows who they are in Christ, everything ultimately belongs to God, including your own life. God entrusted you with your life, and it is, it is his— and it is entirely under your authority. It's your job to decide what to do with your life. And so for most of the series, I've had this candle burning over there to try to remind us that our lives are not—they're a perishing resource. Either we, we can use them, we can waste them, but one of the things we can't do is keep them. And so you have to decide every day, knowing that you can't keep your life, are you going to waste it? Or are you going to use it for what it was entrusted to you for? Does that make sense? Okay. Last week we talked about um, <clears throat> some of these other parables and passages in, um, in Luke chapter 13. And the idea here is that one of the most difficult things as a steward to be faithful with that which has been entrusted to us is that we have to stay on course. And that's very difficult for creatures like human beings who lose their focus very easily. Right? Some of you have already lo- stopped focusing on the sermon, for example. Um, it's very easy for human beings to lose their focus. And so therefore, one of the greatest jobs of a steward is to stay focused. And therefore, to know what causes us to lose our focus. Right? And so, 
we talked two weeks ago about how one of the things that really affects our focus is whether or not we have the right expectations about what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, to be children of a new kingdom, right? And Jesus, so Jesus tells those two parables that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like one of the smallest seeds that there is, and it grows up into the biggest tree that's in a garden. So it starts the smallest, so much smaller than anything else, but then it grows much bigger than everything else. He's saying the kingdom of God will be like that. It's going to start with just this Galilean Jewish rabbi person dying, and it's going to grow into the meaning of the universe. And it's all going to happen in, right? And then he says, but it's also going to happen in a way that's kind of hidden. It's like a woman who has 60 pounds of dough. That's kind of a lot of dough, right? It's more than the average person will bake in a day, right? And she's, she's kneading in a, probably an, another piece of bread that already has yeast in it. That's the way it was done in the ancient world. I explained that a couple weeks ago. So she can't, she can't say, oh, I have 60 pounds of dough, so I'm going to put in X tablespoons of yeast and then just knead it a little bit, and that's good. No, she's got to take this little piece of bread that already has yeast in it and break it up and put it in this whole thing of dough, and she has to work it and 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 work it until she believes it's been spread all through the dough, which she can't confirm until the dough either rises or doesn't, right? And the kingdom of God is like that. We live as Christ's children for the kingdom of God. We're kneading the dough— of Christian ministry. We're living out our lives as stewards the way we believe Jesus wants us to, and we can't tell if what we're doing is working, right? Now, the woman who makes the bread, she knows it will work, right? Because she's made bread before. But she doesn't act, she can't empirically verify it in this loaf of bread until it rises or it doesn't. Does that make sense? And so she does it in faith. She believes it's going to happen, and she does what she's supposed to do, and she believes in the end that it'll rise, and it does it all at once at the end. Does that make sense? And the kingdom of God is like that. And the reason why Jesus tells us that is not just to tell little stories. It's because he knows that if your expectations about what the kingdom of God is doing in the world are wrong, there's nothing that sends a person into an emotional tailspin like having the wrong expectations about something. Does that make sense? If you think it's going to be obvious that you're winning, and then it's not— you'll think it's not working, and then you'll think there's something wrong with Jesus, and then your faith will be upset. Your faith will be weakened. You'll wonder if you're going the right way. Does that make sense? And so he tells us those things so that our focus won't get broken. So as stewards, we can stay on course, because you can't stay focused in the kingdom of God unless you understand, to a certain extent, how the kingdom of God functions and what the kingdom of God is, right? You're a, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a child of the kingdom of God. You have to know how it works. Okay, now, we talked about a couple of those things in chapter 13, but at the end of chapter 13, there's this passage where Jesus deals with spiritual intimidation. And one of the things that can really, really break your concentration is when your oldest child brings you water in the middle, is when, um, is when people, when you feel intimidated by other people, it's very easy to get knocked off your course. Does that make sense? Um, and so Jesus is going along, and he's just taught these relatively difficult truths. And these other religious teachers, who seem to be jealous of the fact that people are listening to him, they come up to him and they say, listen, the, the ruler of this area has planning on killing you. You should run. Right? So— one of the first things that we could look at in relationship to this is 
in terms of setting your expectations as somebody who exists in God's kingdom, is you're going to experience intimidation of all kinds, and, and some, of those, some of that intimidation is going to be moral and spiritual intimidation. And if you don't already know that, then I, that surprises me, right? If you, don't, if you have never felt spiritually intimidated, then you probably haven't lived out your spirituality very much. You probably haven't lived out the Christian faith very much or very openly, because people find the spirituality of others very threatening. They say they're very open to spirituality, but if you live in a very particular way that it's obvious they are not living, and you demonstrate that you have a very strong conviction that you must live this way, nobody really believes that we humans who are all basically the same really should live in completely different ways in areas of deep morality. Does that make sense? We can live slightly differently in how we apply it, but nobody believes that for some people it's okay to kill people who are innocent, and for other people it's not okay, and that's just a difference. Nobody really believes that. And the kind of deep-seated things that faith is about are about really deep, important moral things, and how you parent, how you talk to people, and whether or not you tear people down when they're not there, and right? And if, if you're in a, if you're among a gossiping people and you won't gossip, they don't like that at all. And they will let you know it, and they will try to get you to be like them. And so in this passage, though, Jesus insinuates that he's the Son of God who will die and rise again by saying, on the third day I will reach my perfection. We'll talk about that in just a minute. The main category he uses to talk about himself is the category of a prophet, right? And a prophet is basically someone who comes into a morally broken situation and tells the truth and challenges the spiritual status quo or the moral status quo. He's like, what we're doing is not what we should be doing. And we need to do what we should be doing, and God says we should be doing it, and we better do it, and if we don't, God is going to discipline us or condemn us for not doing it, and if we do it, we'll, we'll be God's people, and there's all kinds of great things that are part of being God's people, right? And what most people hear in that message is the threat, right? I just said like six things. One of those six things was a threat. But if you don't want anything to do with God, and if you want to control your life as the way it is, and you like the status quo the way it is, and you're committed to the system that already exists, the only thing you hear about that pledge of a new way that you could belong to is the threat part. And so you will launch a counterattack. And to the spiritual threat that you receive in, in the word of God spoken, you will give a practical threat back, which is, will, will amount to something like this. If you don't blank— it will cost you blank. Right? So <clears throat> in some places of the world, if you don't renounce your faith in Jesus, we will kill you. Right? In some parts of China right now, if you don't distance yourself from anything Christian or any local church, we will log that in our computer systems and decrease your social points and therefore control your future. Right? But it's not just places like that. I mean, here, there, you, like at work, if you don't gossip with us, we will gossip more about you and tear you down behind your back. If you keep acting like you're better than us, which may not be what you're doing. You may just be trying to serve Jesus. But if—but that threatens people, right? And so to them, it's you trying to be like you're better than them. And if you don't stop trying to be better than us, then we're going to tear you down and all the—we're going to start spreading rumors about you behind your back. If you don't stop <clears throat> openly 
being a Christian at work, I'm going to use that to say that you're trying to convert people religiously at work, and I'm going to steal your promotion. If you don't, stop. I will this. It's a threat. It's intimidation. And sometimes it's very subtle. It's what people call microaggressions now. That's a word that really needs a very clear definition. I don't know if you know this. There's a new micro word. Do you know this? That there's now somebody has coined the term microfascism. Micro, so get, get ready to be called that, right? But there's something to that concept. There's something to the concept we used to call microaggression, um, uh, passive aggressiveness. It, it, they're not exactly the same thing, but the idea that like, I'm going to do something that you know is me attacking you, or I'm going to do something behind your back to attack you that is passive enough that you can't pin it on me, but that is active enough that you get the message or that does real harm, right? That's a real thing. That's a real thing. And it happens all the time, and it's done to people of all kinds of different races and colors and ethnicities and, and genders and so on. It's, it's, everybody does it to everybody. It's a fundamental part of human existence, and it is wrong, right? And sometimes that's how people will try to intimidate you. That's the most common way people will intimidate you. You know what's the most common way people intimidate you? It's not just because they're cowards. It's also because we're such cowards. That's usually all it takes. That's why. Just a little, just a little threat is all it takes for you to just get off your course. And you might think, well, that's not true. But remember, there's, there's more than one way to get off your course, right? We talk a lot about human psychology in relationship to a fight or flight response. So that if you get threatened, you might run or you might fight. But fighting is not necessarily the noble response. It's not really what Jesus does here. Many people think that those are the only two responses to being threatened, and they're not the only two responses to being threatened. And some, some of us <clears throat> are trying to live out a certain amount of courage by saying, I'm never going to run again. And, and honestly, that is, a, that is a first step every human being needs to go through, especially men who are trying to figure out what it means to be masculine. Listen, I was, I, I have been a defective, I was a defective um, man for most of my developmental period, because for, for men, one of the things we respect is strength, and I was a late developing boy. So I was short, and I wasn't physically very strong, and I got bullied a good bit, and it took me several years to figure out that there's only one way to deal with bullies. There's not multiple ways, there's one way, and that is you don't give them an inch. You, you stand your ground, you don't let them push you around. If you could build a coalition of people to stand with you, that would be great. But you can't, because every inch you give, they will take more. They will push you and push you and push you until you fall off the cliff, until they've destroyed everything there is about you, until you have no idea who you are left because you've given everything away. The only thing you can do with bullies is stand up to them. But here's the thing. Once you realize that, your next impulse is going to be, if possible, to beat them to death. <clears throat> right? And that's not, that's not good either. That's not good either. And you see this. You can see this in cultures where power flips from one group of people to the other. There was a people that were oppressed for a while, and then something happens, and then the, pe the group of people who have power flips. You know what happens? Often genocide. They're, they don't become this like, well, you oppressed us, and I know how that feels, and now I have so much empathy for you, and now we're going to live in peace and harmony forever in forgiveness. That's not what happens in almost any place in the world. It does not matter what race, what color skin, what level of education. What usually happens is the oppressed group does everything they can to kill their oppressor group. Because you realize you have to stand up for yourself, and it's really hard to just stand your ground. 
You want to take ground. But you see, Jesus doesn't do either. Jesus is intimidated by these Pharisees. They're like, listen, Herod Antipas is going to kill you. And, and don't think that that's an idle threat, because it may have been less than a year before this that Herod Antipas had killed Jesus' first cousin, John the Baptist. Okay? So this was, this was a triggering sentence to Jesus. You understand? This guy had killed his cousin for saying something about his wife. <clears throat> and now he hears from these guys that aren't supposed to lie or give false testimony. It's in one of the Ten Big Commandments. They say to him, Herod's going to kill you. And Jesus' response is, I'm going to do exactly what I planned to do before you ever showed up here. That's what he does. That's the second point. We should move on so you're encouraged that we're making progress. <laughs> Right, he says this really interesting thing, and it's easy to miss it because it looks kind of like it's redundant, like he's saying the same thing twice. Look at verse 32 if you have the Bible still open. He says, he replied, that is Jesus replied to them, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now that's kind of an interesting thing because it sounds like he does that, that, that idiom kind of twice. Today and tomorrow, today and tomorrow, he does that twice, right? Now here's what, what you wouldn't understand if you don't know the political geography of Israel at this time. So Herod the Great had died and he'd left three of his sons or half-sons or whatever the heck they were in charge of three different parts of his kingdom. Galilee, the Galilee and this other part kind of like here, um, belonged to Herod Antipas. There's a part over here that belonged to Philip the Tetrarch. Oh, actually, if I flip it for you, it's over here to the east. And then Judea and Samaria, um, where Jerusalem was, belonged to a different Herod, not Herod Antipas, okay? And so what these Pharisees apparently wanted, because most of Jesus' ministry had been on in Galilee, and the huge crowds and all that was in Galilee, and th these guys wanted their religious space back, basically. And they were like, look, you need to get out of here because Herod Antipas is going to kill you. Now, what that means is, Jesus, if you go 10 miles south, out of Galilee— You'll be fine. You just need to get out of our backyard. Herod wants to kill you, right? And Jesus' response isn't, well, you're right, I'm going to run. Nor is it, oh yeah, I'm going to go preach outside his door. He just says, listen, I'm going to do exactly what I planned to do before you ever tried to bully me. Before you tried to bully me, here's what I was planning on doing. Finish up my preaching in Galilee and slowly make my way to Jerusalem because as a prophet, every prophet has to die in Jerusalem, right? And I'm going to be—I'm I'm, going to get killed, but you're not going to be the ones who kill me. You see, he, he doesn't change his course at all. He stays on exactly what he was entrusted to do. He doesn't—he doesn't run, and he doesn't fight. He doesn't get manipulated either way. He stays dead on exactly the course he had decided beforehand. You, you don't want to get pushed around on the basis of what was doing, happening. Good example of this is, think about the last time you had like a really good bad argument with your spouse. If you have a spouse or a friend or somebody who you care about, right? And you had to, you had to let you wanted to bring something up and you got this big fight with them, right? Here's what, here's what often happens. You bring something up. The other person acts defensively, Right? And then you do one of two things. Either you back down because you don't want to fight, or you fight and try to win. That's, that's what, that is what, 
That is how unredeemed humanity functions. That is how the flesh functions. That is how our instincts want us to function. That is how every secretion in us wants to live, right? But what should you do? You started the conversation about a thing you wanted to talk about. You started the conversation because there was something that you wanted to address, right? Half the time you get through with one of these arguments, you don't even remember what you started arguing about, right? Like, I've had these with my wife where I've, like, after we're done, I'm like, do you even remember what we started arguing about? And the answer is no. Not really. There's a lot of people who believe there's not, there isn't a third option, but there is, and it's the option that every good steward seeks to stay focused on their purpose. Right? This happens in parenting, too. And in being parented, if you're a kid. Right? But mostly in parenting, because children are barbarians. Right? Ch children know that you've invested an enormous amount of your life in them. That you've given up You've given them hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, to bring them, them in to raise them in the way America half forces you, half intimidates you to raise them, right? You've lost countless hours of leisure. You didn't go on the vacations you wanted to go on. Like, you, you have—you've bet everything on these little creatures who are essentially like a new generation of barbarians that you're trying desperately to civilize, right? And so that you have a lot of yourself in them, and when they— and they realize that. They know that they've got you by the throat, okay? They, they figure this out by, I don't know, six or seven years old, maybe earlier, depending on how bright your kid is. For some kids, for some kids, it's not until they're in their teen years, right? And they realize they've got you by the throat emotionally, and then they realize that they can, that they can make you feel terrible. They can tell you that you don't care about them, and they can tell you that they hate you, and they can tell you that you're doing a terrible job as a parent. Now, my kids never do that, but I counsel people, and then sometimes they share— so, but, that, but they, they do that, right? And it's very—listen, I can't tell you how many parents get spun around in circles by their kids, and they either acquiesce to whatever their kids want, or they fight with them and belittle them and do exactly back to their kids what their kids do to them. And they, they worsen the relationship dramatically because they either run or they fight, right? And I experience this all the time whenever one of my kids, like, decides to pick a fight with me, right? I, like, I try to get them to stop picking fights with me before they're out of the toddler years. I think that's how parenting is supposed to go. I think you're supposed to win the fights before a kid is three so that you don't have to fight them, you know, when they can actually swing a sword. Okay, like, that's my general view. But, you know, they will every once in a while. Um, when, there's a, when they're really holding on to an idol and you confront them, when you play the role of the prophet, they're going to try to kill you. Whether you're right or wrong, okay? There's sometimes I'm just wrong. I'm, I'm a parent. I'm a, I'm a dude. I get angry. Sometimes I'm just wrong. But when I'm right, sometimes I'm right, and I'm playing the role of prophet, and my kids don't appreciate it. And, and they try to intimidate me by taking away my feeling that I'm a good parent and a good man, right? Which I should never believe in the first place. But they know, I, they know I'm a sinner because they live with me, right? So they stick it to me, right? And what I need to do is I need to stay on course. I don't need to fight with them. And I'm not going to run from them. I need to focus on the thing and focus on why I'm doing this parenting thing. Right? But it's not, it's not easy. It's not, and it's not easy because we're afraid. We're afraid. Right? And so Jesus says something that's not very veiled. Okay, He's, he calls himself a prophet in this passage, but he says, he says, you go tell Herod that I will heal and drive out demons today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my— and the, the NIV translation of that word is goal. 
On the third day, I will reach my goal. And that's a pretty good translation, okay? The word translated goal comes from a a Greek word group that's built around the word teleos. You might have heard of teleology. It's uh, it's a word for like the purpose of something. The teleological argument for God's existence is to argue that from the fine-tuning of the universe, that it was— seems to be tuned purposefully, we can know there's a God. That's the teleological argument. It's the, the word has the idea of perfection, wholeness, fulfillment, completion, that kind of idea, all kind of wrapped up into one. Fulfillment, right? On the third day, I will reach my fulfillment. Now, it's not three days until the crucifixion, time-wise, timeline-wise. So why does he say this? He's not even going to be in Jerusalem in three days, and he's not going to die in three days. This idiom, today and tomorrow and on the third day I will, is found nowhere else in the Bible or in ancient literature. There is one place in Exodus where God says, I want you to consecrate yourselves today and tomorrow, and then on the third day you'll come up onto the mountain to receive the law. I do not think that that's an intention, intentional relationship. I th- th- Luke writes this after the resurrection. At that point, Luke's sources understand what Jesus was doing. This was a veiled reference to the fact that he was going to, after he accomplished everything he had intended to accomplish, he was also going to accomplish his death, and he was going to accomplish his resurrection, and on the third day he would reach his fulfillment. And that is what he was going to do. And Jesus knew that he was going to die, and Jesus knew that he was going to rise. And his rising was going to be his conquering of death, and it was going to be his declaration to the whole world that he was approved of by God himself. And part of the reason he says this here is so that we would realize that it was his intention to give us that gift too. You understand? There is, there is this reality— let me see if that's next slide, yeah. Intimidation is a monster that feeds on fear. Without fear, it starves to death. There's nothing to intimidate about. So, for, for example, flattery is the manipulation people can do based on pride, right? So flattery says, if I can see any pride in you, I can manipul- manipulate you. Any area where there's pride in your life, you're vulnerable to flattery and therefore manipulation. Intimidation says, if I can see any fear in you, I can manipulate you. And human beings are full of fear. Our, our lives are rife with it. And so the only way you can be a steward who stays on course and isn't knocked off to fight or flight is if once and for all, or once and developmentally for all, like progressively through your life, you actually deal with every fear down to the worst bottom one. And The problem is is that the greatest human fears are the ones that we deceive ourselves not to think about. Right? One of the most certain things about your life is is that you're going to die. Everything that you have in this life is going to be stripped away from you. Some things slowly, some things quickly. You're going to die, and you've never experienced yourself what's going to happen after that. Whether it's nothing— whether it's a horrific damnation or whether it's a salvation of some kind. And that is going to happen. And whether you like to believe it or not, it looms over you and controls you, even though it's unspoken, unthought about, untalked about. 
And it is a, it is a chain of slavery that is not always in your conscious mind, but is governing an enormous number of your decisions and reactions. And you see, Jesus is dealing with this intimidation about his life. Okay, this is like, we're going to kill you. And he's like, you're not going to kill me. You're not going to kill me. I'm going to die precisely where I'm supposed to die. And I am going to accomplish precisely what I came to accomplish. And you're not going to stop any of that. And then I will reach my fulfillment. Because Jesus knew ultimately after all this death stuff had been taken care of, he was going to rise from the dead. The only way you will ever be able to deal with the fear that makes you intimidatable is if you believe at the bottom of your soul and in the depths of the marrow of your bones that you are a child of the resurrection from the dead. That's it. That's it. That's the only comfort Christianity offers. You are a child of the resurrection from the dead. You're going to die. If you belong to Christ, you are a child of the resurrection from the dead. You are going to age. If you're a Christian, you are a child of the resurrection from the dead, born again into unaging lands. You are going to get sick. You are going to lose people. You are going to be betrayed by people. Your good name is going to be destroyed. Right? It says in Revelation 3 or 4, one of the churches, it says, To him who overcomes, I will give a stone on it. There will be a new name that only he knows. Right? That is this. If you are a child of the resurrection, you get a resurrection name. Which means you, you will inherit your heavenly reputation. You concerned about losing your good name? You should be. Your reputation in heaven is not the reputation you have now. The reputation you have in heaven is right now being worked like yeast through a dough that no one understands that will rise in the end and be what it is. Right? Your reputation in heaven will be your true reputation. And that's true about everything you fear. All your belongings are going to be buried under sand. Every one of them. My boat isn't going to make it. God bless the Headwind Five. But it's not going to make it. It's not even probably going to make it through the mice this winter. <clears throat> but I have a, like it says in Hebrews 11, a greater possession. My true possessions are bound up in me being a child, a son of the resurrection. Right? And it's not only my confidence in that, it's also my—it's not just my hopes being rightly ordered, it's that my fears are rightly ordered. Remember the place where Jesus says, don't be afraid of the person who, after he kills the body, can't do anything more to you, but fear the one who, after he kills the body, can take both body and soul and throw it into hell for eternity. Right? Does he say that? Is he saying that just to be combative? Right? The, the idea is, is that you need not just hopes out in front of you, but you need grounded fears. They're, they're, the right fears ground you, right? I always, 
I always think it's funny when I've, I've read, there was this time in church history where John Wycliffe had translated the Bible into Old English, and the Roman Catholic Church at the time was very upset about that. And so he had died, and so to make a point, they found out where his remains were buried, and they dug them up and like burned them at the stake, right? And it's very symbolic, but you're kind of like, dude, like you're too late. Like he's dead. Like, you, you can't do anything more to him. He's a son of the resurrection, man. He's, he's already in everlasting resurrection life and ageless lands. Like you, there's, you do, what, do what you want with his bones, but it's over, right? There's a huge difference between that and the one who, in whose hands your soul is forever, right? And that, that's a good fear. I remember when I was in high school, I was in high school from like 91 to 95. So that's, you know, in the last millennia, right? And it was when um, culturally we had figured out what AIDS was, but there were no treatments for it yet. Okay, imagine being a teenager in those days. Wee! It was still amazing to me how promiscuous my friends were. They're so like, there was an STT that will kill you. It will kill you. There is no treatment. Right? And at that point, I, I, you know, I grew up kind of vaguely Roman Catholic, and I knew that if I, that if I fathered a child, I was not, I was not going to be for aborting that child. I was going to have to raise that child, and I was, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, and I didn't think that that was a very good idea, you know? And listen, there is not much stronger in the world than teenage hormones, right? Certainly than mine. I mean, mine were like raging like Godzilla. You know, it was, it was hor horrible trying to contain the like profligacy in my soul. But I'll tell you what, have sex and you might die. Have sex and you may father a child that will like completely change your, your track record for how you think you're going to live out the rest of your life. And that got a hold of me enough, barely enough, but enough so that I didn't expose myself to those dangers. I'm really, really glad for that. I think my wife is really glad for that too. Right? I know now from my own history that if I would have given in to what I wanted to, my wife would have gotten cervical cancer. Sound fun? But see, because those fears were instilled in me, they were grounding enough for me that I was able to—because here's the thing. I was a teenager. My fear of missing out was enormous. My fears of, like, not living up to my peers' expectations, my fears that I'm not going to be able to drink enough alcohol or do enough stuff with girls to be happy, or, like, I'm not going to really live in the only moment you're allowed to live because I thought adult life was death. And so I, like, I was like, I've got I've to do this. And I, I had a lot of fears, and that bigger fear grounded me, right? I also feared the Lord during that time, too. And those three fears worked together to just get me through and, like— you need the right hopes and the right fears, and you need them in place, and you need them in place in a very deep way. Because life is full of things that will terrify you. It's not easy. It's not simple. It's hard. And you have to have your hopes and your fears, the right fears and the right hopes, connected to each other, unified in Christ, filled with his resurrection life, ready to roll, or you will not be able to overcome your biology and chemistry and secretions. You will not be able to overcome the intimidation from people without. You will not be able to overcome the trials that come. You, you won't be able to face any of it. But if you have those things in place, you'll be able to face all of it. And some of it will even feel kind of easy. 
stuff that other people will look at you as you mature. Some, you'll get to the point. People will be like, how did, I don't understand how you're dealing with this so well. And you'll be like, I don't know what to tell you. But you will be dealing with it very well. <clears throat> it says in Hebrews, and this is right, the passage right before the passage that talks about Jesus as the perfect steward. Jesus is the perfect steward because he's the perfect high priest, because he did this. It says this, since the children, that is the children of the kingdom, people who've come to believe in him, that's you, if you believe in Jesus, or it's going to be you when you believe in Jesus. Since the children have flesh and blood, they're actually human, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and this, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. See, see, the idea there is not just that the—it's not just that the angels haven't sinned, and we have, <clears throat> and so we need the atoning work of Jesus, and they don't. It's more than that. It's the angels aren't flesh and blood. The angels are spirit. They are not confused by us. They're, they live in the presence of God. They see the kingdom of God. It's not yeast and dough to them. It's, <clears throat> it's teeth and mortar to them. It couldn't be more real to them. And so they don't have any fear of death. They're deathless creatures. They've always been deathless creatures. And so they don't, they don't need someone to take on humanity and die to free them from their fear of death. But we do. We who age and fear and die, we need that. In all the ways that the devil pushes on us the temptations to maximize those fears and our own neuroses, he— the perfect son, the perfect steward, the perfect humanity died so that we could be free from the thing that kept us slave about him. The slavery that we wouldn't even name. It was the word unspoken to ourselves that we don't even want to tell ourselves or even know that we're held enslaved to the fear of death. But some of the stuff that you do that is just really dumb, the stuff you do that, that you don't know why you impulsively do it. It's because you're afraid that if you don't, you won't have lived in the one chance you have to live. You're afraid your youth is going to run out or your moment to, to grab life while it exists. You know, it's a, spinning, it's a spinning sphere in the universe and I've just got this one minute on this accidental life that's going to be there and it's going to poof. It's going to be extinguished in a moment. I've got these few years to enjoy it and I need to enjoy it, right? That is diametrically opposed to the reality that Jesus came to deliver in his resurrection, which is no, no. You have this moment to realize the deathless eternal creature that you really are. And the one work that you must do in these few days you have on this earth is to just to find out what you are and what God has made you to be so that you can enjoy it forever. Any sacrifice you make. And that, think about this. Why do you think Jesus gave us a life of sacrifice? And, and called that a gift. The New Testament paints a much more sacrificial picture of, of life and faith than the Old Testament does. And it makes no promises, virtually, of present earthly blessings. Why is that okay? Why is that good news? Why is following the way of the cross to death like this magnanimous, wonderful thing? It is because of the resurrection. Because of the reality of heaven, of an eternal life, 
that is guaranteed in the cross and that is we're meant to cling to in our momentary lives. And it's in this life, in the moments of present intimidation, that you need to realize that you're a son or daughter of the resurrection. And you shouldn't fear the person who can hold up your promotion. You should fear the one who, after you're dead, can throw soul and body into heaven, into hell, or heaven. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. He says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's, that's not just firstborn in his incarnation, but firstborn out of the dead, it says in other places in the New Testament. And sisters, and those he predestines, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Like it's already happened. It's like we're already there, right? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, that is God the Father, who spared his own son, but did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also, along with Jesus, give us everything that we need? The answer is, of course. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, it says. So lastly, let's talk about this for a minute. Because if, if the glory of the resurrection, hope, builds in you the kind of strength so that you can stand your ground and stay your course. The question is, what should your attitude be, or how do you respond to the intimidators in your life? Right? Jesus says that his, his attitude towards them is essentially the role of a prophet, right? Which is to tell the truth into a given situation and then see what happens. That's all you can do. And Jesus is pretty tough on these guys, right? Like he, he says— they say, hey, you know, Herod's going to kill you. He's like, you guys, you guys go tell that fox that I'm going to do what I'm going to do, right? Like, he's a, like, he doesn't see this king with armies. He sees a moral scoundrel, okay? That's, that's part of what prophets do. Prophets don't see the worldly structures. They see what people really are spiritually and morally, and they speak the truth into it. And he's like, you know, Herod Antipas, he, you know, he wears a really nice little crown, but morally he's a fox. He's a duplicitous, scheming little vagrant. Right? And then he says, he says, I'm going to heal and I'm going to drive out demons. Today and tomorrow on the third day, I'm going to reach my fulfillment. And he says, in any case, I need to do these things today and tomorrow because no—and then on the third day, I'll die because no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. And then he says the word Jerusalem, and then it's almost like he pauses. And then Luke uses the word Jerusalem twice because it's, it's almost like— you're supposed to realize he's emoting here, right? There's not a lot of places where Jesus is teaching or talking, and it's specifically written so that you know that Jesus is expressing his feelings. So I'm just going to skip this passage because I don't like feelings. I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, it, uh, <clears throat> this is important, and it's, it's very important for you. So listen to this. He says, he says, no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. And then it's almost like he hears himself say the word Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem. He says Jerusalem, and, and just saying the word, he thinks of the city. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. It's a really interesting passage. I remember reading that. I've read that a number of times, and I've always thought that was a beautiful passage about the love of God for, uh, for all people. 
I mean, I, I think that that's, met, that's, that's the reason Luke included that is because he knew that that was intended for every human in every generation to hear those words and to know that they belong to that group. That, that God is like a mother hen who, who knows that his, her little chicks are going to freeze to death out there. And everything is sharp, sharp out there in the world and wants to eat them. And she's got this fluffy underside. And she just wants to tuck you in there where it's warm and fluffy. And that's, <clears throat> I mean, I believe in a tough-as-nails God. <clears throat> but I believe in a God who is as nurturing and gentle as a mother hen, too. I believe in a God that has an absolutely full personality, born in all the temperaments of humanity as we bear the image of God together. Okay? But one of the things I've read, I've probably read that passage a hundred times. And as I was looking at it this week, I thought, you know, it's really interesting that he says this when he's not at Jerusalem in Luke's gospel. He's not there. It's not, he doesn't come over the hill and see the city of Jerusalem and say, oh, Jerusalem. And that, that's the context. He says it in the context of him dying as a prophet. Think about that. And then he says, don't you see every prophet dies in Jerusalem? And then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So many times I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. Think about that. Just think about that connection. What is he saying? He's saying that every time a prophet stood up and went to that city and spoke harshly to it, you foxes, you need to turn back to God. You know, that spoke like a prophet who told the truth and got in their face. Jeremiah and Isaiah, and you could go through, like, and there's, it was just the ones in the Bible that are the literary prophets that wrote something. There's all these other prophets that God sent. Maybe hundreds of them. And they all got killed. Right? And Jesus is going to get killed. He's like, and I'm a prophet too. And they're going to kill me too. And he's like, oh, Jerusalem. You who stone the prophets and kill everybody who sent you, how I've longed to gather you. How many times? It literally says, how many times? Do you see that? For every time a prophet came to them and told them the truth they didn't want to hear, who they intimidated and ultimately killed, every one of those people that they didn't like, that said things they didn't want to hear, every one of them represented in the heart of God, in his providence in sending them, him just wanting to gather them like chicks under his wings. That's what was really happening. The fiery prophet who's like, listen, you guys are going to get it. You need to stop doing this. You need to turn back to God. You need to, you need to quit. You need to say you're sorry. You need to turn to the one who created you. You need to, right? Every time that happened, you know what was happening? In eternity, behind the scenes, in the heart of God himself, what was happening was God feeling like a mother hen, wanting to save these little chicks and pull them together in this warm place. That was the motivation behind all that. And that's what he says. It, it, those, those two things, you see, the, the, the absolute moral seriousness of God in all of his prophetic offices and his tender, absolute loving desire are a hundred percent interwoven. Right? So you, you're never going to be successful believing in a God who is nothing but like, you know, fluffy pillows and like, puppy dogs and like, like, oh, sweetie, like, or a God that's all like, hey, you, you know, I'm serious business. In the heart of God, these are the same thing. Grace and truth are, are just wound up together and woven in one thing. 
the hard voice of the prophet and the tender desire to gather the chicks, it's the same thing. And as somebody who experiences intimidation, what you have to recognize is that— band, you guys can come up, by the way— um, is that you're called to stay on course as that steward, to tell the truth, to, to stand up to whoever might intimidate you, but not to fight. Not to fight, but to have the kind of pity and love and compassion that Jesus had. Listen, Jesus said, um, look, your house is left to you desolate. Do you catch that? Jer- Jerusalem was as rich as it had ever been. They just finished a 40-year building temp- project on the temple. They were so rich that the temple priests would only accept a certain kind of minted coin from Tyre that they liked and had a high enough silver quality, and they made people buy those coins. Like, that's how, like, persnickety they were. Like, times were good, you know? But Jesus could see back a thousand years to the prophets, and he could see forward 40 years from now when Titus was going to come from Rome, and he was going to open the gates of the city during Passover so every Jew could come in, and then he was going to close the gates and starve every one of them and wreak the kind of destructive wrath so that blood flowed in the streets. The only people that survived were men that were still strong enough to go into the slave markets, and none were heard from again. It was one of the worst bloodbaths in the history of that land, and Jesus saw that. In the moment when they were saying, we're going to kill you, he could see that they were all going to die. And that's what he cared about. What he cared about was them. Everybody who intimidates you, think about this, are are the people who are going to intimidate you right with God? At least not in that way. They are your stewardship. They are the mission God has sent you on. They are the people Jesus died for. And you're a son or daughter of the resurrection. There's nothing they can take from you. And there's nothing in them to fear more than the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. Or heaven. You see, if as a steward you know who you are, you will be able to handle every moment of intimidation. You won't run or fight too much. Your heart will be in the right place towards those outside of you. You'll know what you're supposed to care about, and you'll be solid in your hopes, not just your loves, because you'll know you're a son or daughter of the resurrection. You have to do business with that truth. It's not enough to just go, yep, I believe in the resurrection. No, 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 no. You've got to connect it to every thought you think about your reputation, about your aging, about your fertility, about your future— about your occupation, about your schooling, about the clothes you buy, and the food that you eat, and how you use your leisure, and what media is fitting for you to put before your eyes, and everything. And then nothing will be able to knock you off your stewardship. You will be, a fa- you will be faithfully entrusted with what you need to carry. Let's pray. God, we pray that as you— um, make known to us the beauty of the truths of Christ crucified and risen more deeply. And as we set our hearts and minds and lives more fully on those things, God, we pray that you would make us fearless people. But not just fearless, not just courageous, full of a tender love that has compassion even on our enemies. That when we get threatened like Jesus got threatened, we would respond like Jesus responds. That the very people who would threaten us with murder. We would see as people in danger of having a desolate future 
and people you've called us to love as well as we can. And though we can't give them the resurrection, help us to know how to give them word of the resurrection in a way they can accept. In Jesus' name.